Hello and welcome to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. If you're on social media, follow us on Twitter at 814NEXT. Like our page on Facebook. Feel free to comment on both platforms and lend your voice to the dialogue. For those that are listening on radio, thank you for tuning in. Gentrification. And so if you're tuning in on radio, you probably turn the radio up just a touch. If you're scrolling on Facebook and you see this live feed, that word probably slowed you down and you honed in and paid attention. There's something about that word that is impactful and is somewhat of a firebrand in this day and age. I want to start with a personal experience. Yeah, I sat outside of an establishment in downtown Erie, and this was late spring, well, actually late summer, early fall, and it was a multicultural group of individuals, all of us professionals, black, white, male, female, we're having a great time, great discussion. And so we start talking about neighborhood revitalization and the subject of gentrification comes up. And this germane conversation, this great meeting among friends took a left turn. And once it took that left turn, it was impossible to bring back the center. And as they say, when the train left the station, we couldn't reel it back in. And the next thing you know, Voices are being raised. People are digging into their positions. There was frustration. And at some point when it was all said and done, we kind of looked at each other and said, what happened? And it helped us understand just how easy it is when it comes to this word to get swept away in your own personal emotional connections to whatever the side of the disagreement is, whether you are looking at it from a development standpoint, if you're looking at it from a neighborhood standpoint, I found myself connecting to the childhood and teenage markets that lived in uh, one of these areas where the, the landscape was changing, growing up with relatives and friends in some other areas where the landscape is changing. And there's a side of me that kind of took center stage at some point in that conversation. And as I pointed out earlier, it got away from us. And so I learned to appreciate the power of that term and everything that it represents. But what it also underscored was the fact that we have to have honest dialogue and discussion when it comes to this topic. The way we'll handle this topic over the next few shows is according to a methodology that I was involved with, with police community relations. One of the things that I thought was valuable that at one point the law enforcement and everyone associated with law enforcement had an opportunity to express themselves on police community relations. And those of us in the room that represented the voices of community were forced to just listen for the entire session, not five minutes of it, not 30 minutes of it, for the entire session, there was no rebuttal. We couldn't make remarks. If there was something heard that we didn't particularly care for, we had to just listen and swallow it for that entire session. The following week, or the following session, we did the exact same thing on the community side. Now law enforcement is on the other side of the table. We're expressing our frustrations with the historical relationship between law enforcement and community. And law enforcement, again, for the entire session, had to just listen. And then for a third session, we all came together and we exchanged thoughts and ideas 
on this topic because much like gentrification, when you talk about the relationship between community and law enforcement, especially the African-American community or inner city community, it turns into somewhat of an adversarial exchange. I thought that was valuable because had we have not done it that way, I know personally, there's a couple of things I would have just chimed in on without hearing the officer out and having to hear them out, go home and really digest everything that was said and let it settle in my spirit and think about how I felt about it. it was so valuable and we were able to come back to the table and it changed the way I expressed myself when it was time for community to speak. I say all that to say, this is how we'll handle this topic today. We will undress certain things about this from a historical standpoint, from an educational standpoint. Uh, toward the end of the show, we'll talk to a couple of individuals that are involved from a development standpoint and just get one side of this issue. When you come in next month and you view this show, you'll notice a panel full of community people and those that advocate for community. And we'll have this discussion from that vantage point. And hopefully we can circle back for a third installment where people can exchange ideas and have a healthy, uh, have healthy discourse and dialogue on the topic. So where today is concerned, we'll start with um, just taking this on overall. There was a poll on Facebook and um, let me add this before I even go into the poll. This was the toughest show to get guests for ever. I've been doing this three years. Three years. I call people, you want to come on and talk about gentrification. I don't know if I want to go on that show. Hey, you want to come on a show? Yes, that'd be great. We're talking about gentrification. I don't know if I'm the person for that. Even with the online poll, it was very difficult to get people to declare one way or another whether or not they feared gentrification based upon all of the development that they see in Erie going on right now. But we did get some sort of poll taken. And when you look at it on the screen, 71 people chimed in. 65% the topic or the question was specifically with all of the development going on in Erie, are you concerned about gentrification, yes or no? And if so, they were free to comment. And so as you see, 65% of the people that did chime in said yes. 35% of people that chimed in said no. And some of the commentary was interesting. Uh, some I expected. Um, I looked at the fact that when it comes to the racial lines drawn, I almost expected the no answer to be all of our white brothers and sisters, and that wasn't the case. And so it was, it was interesting, although the, um, the group that we polled wasn't large, it was an interesting take on how people feel in general about this topic. So now what is gentrification? There is a video that was produced by the Urban Displacement Project. And the video is seven minutes long. We're not going to show the entire clip, but I thought that they expressed it well in terms of what the working definition of gentrification is. Let's go to that clip. Gentrification is constantly being talked about. In the past 10 years, the number of Google searches for the word gentrification has more than doubled, and mentions in the news and in literature have gone up. So, people are talking about gentrification, but they often mean different things when they use the term. Gentrification is a process of neighborhood change that includes economic change in a historically disinvested neighborhood by means of real estate investment and new, higher-income residents moving in, as well as demographic change, 
not only in terms of income level, but also in terms of changes in the education level or racial makeup of residents. Gentrification is complex and needs some explaining. To understand it, there are three key things to consider. The historic conditions, especially policies and practices that made communities susceptible to gentrification. The way that central city disinvestment and investment patterns are taking place today as a result of these conditions and the ways that gentrification impacts communities. And so there's a basic definition of the way the word is used today. So some may wonder where this word come from in the first place. The word was coined by British sociologist Ruth Glass in 1964 based on changes she had observed in the city of London. I actually want to read just a brief quote from this book the book is entitled, Ain't Nothing Going On Up But The Rent. Clever title. Um, Gentrification and the Housing Crisis. What I like about this book is it's kind of an entry-level book. You can find this at the public library. This has opposing views. And when it comes to every topic, but especially topics uh, this controversial, I love to read people's takes on both sides of the issue. Fascinating read. But one of the quotes that I want to read by her is by Ruth Glass is the thing that kind of led to her wanting to look into this in the first place. She says, one by one, many of the working class quarters have been invaded by the middle class, upper and lower. Shabby, modest mews and cottages, two rooms up and two down, have been taken over when their leases have expired and have become elegant, expensive residences. Once this process of gentrification starts in a district, it goes on rapidly until all or most of the working class occupiers are displaced and the whole social character of the district is changed. As, you, as we researched further about this and you go into the et etymology of this word, it's interesting that historians say that gentrification actually took place in ancient Rome and in Rome, Roman Britain where large villas were replacing small shops by the third century. But the word gentrification derives from gentry, which comes from the old French word gentiris, of gentle birth, 14th century, and people of gentle birth, 16th century in England. The landed gentry specifically denoted a social class consisting of gentlemen, and this is fascinating to me at least. The landed gentry, or simply the gentry, hence the term, is largely historical British social class consisting in theory of landowners, landowners, who could live entirely from rental income, or at least had a country estate. It was distinct from and socially below the aristocracy, if you will, although in fact some of these landed gentry were wealthier than some of their aristocratic peers, and many were related to these peers. So this is the brief history of this word. But now you can't discuss gentrification without talking about the historical um, effects or the, the root causes of some of this. And for that, we go back to another clip by the Urban Displacement Project. In that clip, they discuss redlining. Go to the clip, please. Over the last century, many policies and practices have created racialized patterns of disinvestment in city centers that have left low-income communities of color particularly susceptible to gentrification. From the 1930s through the late 60s, standards set by the federal government and carried out by banks explicitly labeled neighborhoods home to predominantly people of color as risky 
and unfit for investment. This practice, now known as redlining, meant that people of color were denied access to loans that would enable them to buy or repair homes in their neighborhood. And so redlining was a practice that, to this very day, has its effects on cities throughout this country. There was a great article written by Jonathan Burdick. It was an Erie reader. It's called Tracing Erie's History of Redlining. Now, there's, you can look up these maps online. There's actually a redlining map of Erie. If we can pull that out, for, pull that up for a minute, please. And, you know, this is fascinating because... Again, the effects of redlining exist to this very day. And when you look at this and unpack the article from Mr. Burdick, he talks about a few things. And one of the things that he says is in the, accompany, in the accompanying documents for each neighborhood, there's reports to go along with this. The reports identify the, the inhabitants by the type of people who live there, the percentage of foreign-born and Negro residents these were the undesirables, and if many lived in a section, it was referred to as an infiltration. And so I, I want to draw special attention to that because I think we make the mistake of thinking that this in particular is a black thing. And this is an economic thing. And some of the classes that were deemed as undesirable went beyond just people of color. Some of these sections here, the D4 area from East Front Street to East 4th had this label on it. Another neighborhood was, was labeled D5. And in that area, it says there's an infiltration of Negroes and identifies a specific concentration along railroad tracks and on 13th to 16th Streets. It also notes a high amount of Polish immigrants and some low-class Jewish on 17th and 18th Streets from French to Parade. This is interesting, Little Italy with 60% Italian immigrant families, along with a small contingent of black households, was also considered hazardous and one of the least desirable neighborhoods. And also when you look at this map, one of the things that you'll notice is at that time, the neighborhood that hit the redlining lottery was our brothers and sisters in Frontier. And by no coincidence, the Frontier area still thrives economically. And so we'll start and we'll unpack this a little more. I want to bring in our first guest as we talk about these things. Our first guest is Dr. Um, Saylor. Yes, correct. Assistant Professor of Criminology at Mercyhurst. Dr. Saylor, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, Dr. Saylor, I know that you have some. I mentioned Little Italy in there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, again, I just wanted to point out the fact that this isn't necessarily an African-American thing, although this article did point out that disproportionately so, According to a report from Emerge 2040, to this very day, African-Americans are most adversely affected by the fallout from redlining. You were in charge of doing a little research for a grant in Little Italy. Correct. Talk about that a little bit, please. So the Byrne Grant in Little Italy, that investment um, of about $600,000 in Little Italy, was an attempt to revitalize a neighborhood, to reduce crime. It was a, an attempt to focus on place-based policing. Um, there's some varying arguments about is it place-based or should it be sort of people-based? We understand that a, a small minority of people, about 5% or so, commit most crimes. Um, but this grant focused on place-based policing. And so what we wanted to do was understand how we could change the environment to make it less desirable for, criminal, for criminals, the criminal element. 
So what that entailed is some foot patrols, uh, mobile precinct, and code enforcement. And I think that's kind of where we get into this discussion is, is, is sort of touchy, is that code enforcement? Is it aggressive? Is it trying to push people out? Or is it trying to uh, make the neighborhood less desirable for the criminal, make it uh, seem as though there is an actual guardian in the neighborhood, right? So in criminal justice, there's criminological theory that suggests, you know, an absence of a guardian is a significant driver of criminality if people aren't paying attention. And the idea of the burn grant, part of it at least, was to make it as though people were really paying attention. So simple things, whether it was the white pick offenses you may see uh, uh, throughout um, the green space in Little Italy, it just appears as someone's paying attention to it. Or is it efforts by code enforcement to not aggressively enforce code, but to work with residents? And that's what code really did try to do, at least in the Little Italy area, was work with residents, provide them with resources to update whatever issues they're having. We understand and we understood at the time that residents may not have access to the funds they need to fix their roof, to fix their house in a siding, their, their windows. So we did our best to provide a resource guide for code enforcement, and code would allow those residents uh, ample opportunity, or at least opp opportunity, maybe not ample, um, time to fix those issues. Um, so in terms of what we found, we found that a majority of code enforcement violations were for simple things. Um, high grass was a big one. Right? And it doesn't seem like much, but then we would talk to EPD officers and they would say, well, you know, we would find things like needles and even guns in high grass. So if we can just keep the grass down. And that's a simple solution. Um, neighborhood Network, uh, uh, Saint, Sisters of St. Joseph Neighborhood Network is a community partner in Little Italy, and they have access to lawnmowers. Mm -hmm. So simple things like that, that code enforcement, um, you know, was addressing concerns in Little Italy and residents were able to address that concern themselves through a partnership with Sister St. Joseph. Uh, we found that there were ebbs and flows in code enforcement violations. Um, if violations would go out, they would have essentially their sweeps, and then there would be corrective action taken. We didn't find a lot of um, citations that made it to the MDJ level, the magisterial district judge level, suggesting that residents were able to fix whatever the issue was in time that they wouldn't be you know, facing things like eviction or things like that. Um, another associated aspect of it is the presence of what you might call absentee landlords. Mm. Um, we found a lot of residents, and there's certainly, I, I understand a concern with anything with like gentrification, revitalization in terms of neighborhood residents feeling they may be pushed out. That's the historical perspective. Mm. Um, and, and what we found though, when really engaging with residents was that's a concern for them, but we said, well, hey, you know, what is the issue with your house? Do you have a landlord that addresses these concerns? And they said, well, no, we don't. Um, we don't like living in the shoddy housing, but we can't do anything about it. It's what we can afford. We would like the, res the, the uh, landlord to fix it up. So we also felt like that was an opportunity for code enforcement to help out residents, to focus on those, those landlords that weren't holding up their end of the responsibility. So prior to you doing this work. Mm -hmm. Give us your background. Did you have any any experience or encounters with researching or, or anything that involves this whole process of gentrification? Before we began implementing the burn grant uh, as a research partner, we went to various cities, and one was Boston, and they focused on the Dorchester Bay neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, in Boston, it was a driver of crime, one of the top one or two neighborhoods in terms of crime driving Boston's numbers in the neighborhood. 
and, and so Dorchester Bay wanted to revitalize the neighborhood. Um, I don't know if I'm just optimistic or naive. Um, I look at revitalization as hopefully not a euphemism of gentrification. I understand it could be, it's scary. Mm -hmm. But Dorchester Bay focused on revitalizing the neighborhood to a point where the criminal element wouldn't want to be there. They focused on allowing residents to remain in their homes, focused on a, pro a plan that had mixed and low-income housing still you know, available for residents, developed um, through a couple different strategies, um, the economy of Dorchester Bay, and in a short time, pushed the criminal element. Now, not being a euphemism for people of color, but the criminal element, the actual criminals no one wants to live mm -hmm. in their neighborhood, right. out of the neighborhood, and, and made it one of the safer places to be while maintaining a diverse neighborhood, while allowing those individuals that live there to still live there, increased, you know, sort of what their houses were like. You know, no one wants to live in that, that shoddy apartment that no landlord is upkeeping. Um, so Dorchester Bay was able to revitalize the neighborhood in the truest sense of the word, revitalize, make it a desirable place to live for the residents and allow those residents to stay there. So being exposed to that was really powerful because part of it was a bus tour, part of it was a walking tour. We got to see some of the opportunities um, in economic development, but we also got to interact with the diverse population. Um, I forget exactly what um, ethnic restaurant we ate at, but there was a whole community there. And it, it was good to see that this, this community was revitalized. It wasn't a scary place to be. And it still had its, its diverse population. It didn't lose that identity. And I think that's a really scary thing for people. And I think that might be why it's such a hot button topic is, mm -hmm. is the fact that people kind of lose that identity and, and, and are pushed out and, and it's just all of a sudden it's, not what they know anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, Dorchester Bay was able to maintain that and, and they do really good work and they still are doing good work to keep Dorchester Bay a community that is desirable for the residents of Dorchester Bay. So I take it this was one of the better examples of the different or areas that you researched on this topic? Yes. Um, it was the one I was exposed to the most in terms of like, this is what we want to strive to for uh. Little Italy. Um, we didn't really have exposure to and this is where it's failed. Mm, excellent. So you said you had an opportunity to talk to residents in Erie yes. and in the Dorchester Bay area. To some extent. To some extent. Two things. One, are there reoccurring themes with the re reoccurring conversational themes from some of these exchanges with residents at the grassroots level? And then the other question would be, walk us through your own personal evolution or aha moments when it comes to this particular topic from your research? So talking to residents, I think that's key in any plan for revitalization. If we don't include residents, residents don't understand what's going on, right? And then that's, that's what breeds up fear, rumors, just, you know, educating residents what's going on, but also involving them in it. So understanding what they're scared of. So in the discussions in Little Italy specifically, it was, you know, we, we like living here. We have a really good relationship with police. Um, sometimes though the perception is a bit negative because the interactions are driven by arrests, but we don't think is it like us versus them mentality. It's like, we think it's a good, um, a, a good force. Uh, we see them positively. Um, what community members were scared of though, um, currently in Little Italy, there's a large immigrant population first generation. So they feared interacting with the system at large, whether it was police, whether it was reporting, mm -hmm. um, their landlords, uh, whatever it may be. Um, and, and so 
we wanted to do our best to focus on that and to allow their concerns to be a significant portion of the plan as much as we could. Um, very much like the show, though, it was difficult recruiting, um, getting people to come talk about it. We held focus groups in the Little League neighborhood. It was just difficult for people to feel comfortable talking about it. And I think that speaks to sort of the historical concerns with gentrification or the actual concerns of gentrification of forcing people out. Mm -hmm. They felt like they were the minority population and, and maybe that was driving their fears. Um, central themes were um, the frustration with landlords. Um, they're in Little Italy, Sisters of St. Joseph Neighborhood Network does a fantastic job of doing their best to purchase um, properties to revitalize or to offer to residents but a lot of it is also rent-based, and that was a frustration that we're paying rent and we're not seeing the upgrades that we need, mm -hmm. um, even with code enforcement coming in. And then household owners or homeowners getting those code enforcement violations, having to fix up their properties, but then seeing maybe the apartment next door not being fixed up. Mm. Um, so those were some concerns we've heard throughout. Um, and in, in Dorchester Bay, uh, we didn't have a, a, a lot of opportunity to talk to residents specifically but we did talk to um, a few at a event held by the um, Dorchester Bay Economic um, Development Corporation. And a primary partner for them is Boston PD, but they have very specific Boston PD officers that really want to work with the community. And the members that we had, we had got a quick discussion with loved the fact that their neighborhood was now a safe place to be. It was a uh, after school opportunity with kids and they they felt safe having their kids run out you know in the neighborhood they they felt safe that it wasn't kind of like this us versus them mentality with mm -hmm. boston pd um, they felt safe because the dorchester bay economic development corporation was like their partner was their advocate mm -hmm. um, and i think that's another key aspect to any plan is having that good community organization mm -hmm. that can inform residents that can act as their advocate when residents may not know what avenues to take when the evidence was all said and done, when everything was all said and done, what were, what were your personal takeaways? And then give us a snapshot of what the, the, the children are saying about this, the youth at, at your particular university. Takeaways from the burn grant were, there's potential. Um, did we accomplish everything we wanted to? No but there's potential. Um, I think the biggest takeaway I took from it was it has to be born in that grassroots effort. It can't be top-down um, because top-down has limited impact, limited, you know, sustainability these days is obviously key. What can you do with little to nothing down the road? And so the grassroots effort is where it's at. And that's what I took away from personally. Currently, thinking about the historical perspective, my research in it, um, so I've had some interesting discussions in a class I'm um, teaching, race, crime, and justice. And we actually talked about gentrification a little bit yesterday. It wasn't in relation to this. It was just an opportunity we had to talk about. And, and we talked about why it's such a scary subject. Um, you touched on redlining. And, and we had a fantastic conversation at one point. And at Mercyhurst, our population isn't very diverse. Um, and, and a lot of the white students in class weren't feeling like they could talk about race. Mm -hmm. They're saying, well, what perspective do I have? Well, you know, you have ideas, you have observations. And I think that's what leads to 
this concern with gentrification is maybe some um, members of the population might feel like it isn't such an issue where others that are focused of gentrification obviously feel like it's a significant issue because they're losing their housing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just education. I look at things like the Federal Housing Authority, part of FDR's New Deal, that led to led to redlining, right. that leads to the A, B, C, D, and, and F grading of neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what that means in practical experience, this isn't something that's set in the 30s um, or 40s. This is Jim Crow South segregation continuing to impacts today. And, and what it comes down to is the wealth gap. Um, the minority community in the United States in general starts from really two steps down, right? Their next step they can make on the staircase isn't really achievable many right. times because of that wealth gap. Currently it's about uh, white families' worth, their, their wealth, mm -hmm. their cumulative wealth is about 10 times that of black families. Right. And it is born in that redlining. It's born in that segregation of things like we're talking about with gentrification. So it's something that is still occurring today, even though it seems like, you know, maybe with like the Civil Rights Act, all, all of a sudden segregation is cured and fixed and mm -hmm. we can move past that. But, but that's kind of my take or... or where I feel like I feel with gentrification is saying, no, it, it, it isn't solved, it isn't fixed, it's still going on today, and we're still feeling the effects today. And then you see, like, the grading. You see that still in neighborhoods with, you know, um, interaction with, like, police officers, right? Mm -hmm. So kids in Little Italy would say, we have this, we, we think EPD is a positive force, but the only interaction we have with them is when they're arresting my brother or my uncle or my cousin. Mm -hmm. And so that drives negative viewpoint of police uh, and, and so that's a concern too it's you make a lot of interesting points i mean 1968 the fair housing act passes a week after the assassination of dr king and although that that law passes at that point gentrification not gentrification redlining had already kind of taken root and the effects of it were in motion at that time from a financial standpoint the primary asset that many families hand down to their children is their home. Mm -hmm. And for many people, that's their leg up. You know, mom and dad dies, the home is paid off. If you do sell it, it's an economic boost to the family. Sometimes they utilize that home as collateral to send kids to college, and the mm -hmm. list goes on. And if you alter that, obviously the economic trajectory of a family is altered. And lastly, whether it's Erie's redlining map or the redlining map from other cities, Boy, when you hold that up against today's areas, I mean, you, you overlay it to a 2019 map, the areas that they said, we're not investing in those, those, those it's the hood still. And those are areas <laughs> we're investing today, like Little Italy. <laughs> right, we're right. still trying to, you know, feeling the effects in the, you know, mm -hmm. 2019, here we are. Uh, you, you mentioned that access, and it wasn't, and I think sometimes, too, I, I have this, with freshmen, I see this while people are, have committed a crime and, and, and they have to pay for it. You know, we're talking about like a corrections class. Um, I think sometimes it's like, well, if, if you want to have a house, you should save for it and, and work hard for it and you'll have access to getting a house. That's not the case with redlining. That's the issue was individuals weren't even able to move up and out. They didn't have access to it. They're graded as a D or an F and, and a high risk opportunity for a bank to invest a mortgage in mm -hmm. or, um, you know, even just thinking about this conversation, I, I found that in the 1950s, uh, um, ethics code for national realtors was to not introduce minority families in white neighborhoods because it was uh, 
suggests it was detrimental to those neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this isn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. It's not like this is just post-Civil War Reconstruction South, where it's like, oh, that's a couple generations ago. That's like, you know, our grandparents' age, mm-hmm. if not even closer to us. And like you said, we're still feeling the effects today. Literally was was uh, highlighted as an area of concern in Erie's red line map. And then in 2014, we're investing $600,000 mm-hmm. in revitalizing Erie. Mm-hmm. It's like you said, it, it's it's very telling. It really is. And listen, this is a great discussion. We've got two other guests. Why don't we get you two in here and let you get situated as we segue over to you. But where this map is concerned, I mean, obviously it isn't absolute. I thought it was interesting that just um, south of Little Italy, the area right around the cemetery, I mean, that was blue, which means it was good. It had potential and things along those lines. And even now, it's probably, you know, come down a touch from there. So we, we recognize the fact that it isn't absolute. But by and large, the areas at issue um, are the same areas that were designated problem areas, quote unquote. And lastly, before I segue into these other two, with, with our students, with your students, the, the young white students that, that felt like they didn't necessarily have a voice in this conversation. This is one of the reasons that I'm glad that Jonathan Burdick in this article pointed out the plight of our Polish brothers and sisters, Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, the Italian population in Little Italy. And when you read other accounts about gentrification in certain areas losing its identity, you hear about areas like Chinatown and things along those lines. So this is why I say it's not necessarily an African-American thing, you know, not at, all. at all. And so I want to bring into this discussion uh, two of our guests that have been on the show actually before. We've got Nicole Reitzel, and Nicole is the Vice President of Community Engagement for Erie Downtown Development Corporation. Correct. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you. And Mr. Brett Weiler, I think last time you came, you were with the city. That's correct. Okay, and so Brett, give us your new title because it's kind of long it's and I don't want to ruin long. it. It's very long. I am the uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Director of Capital Formation for the Flagship Opportunity Zone Development Company. And that took the rest of the show just yeah, right. to say. <laughs> Excellent. So thank you, too, for coming on. And, you know, we want to talk about this this topic because, Nicole, I can imagine, Brett, I know we've had one-on-one conversations. You talk about neighborhood revitalization, and when you become the face of neighborhood revitalization to some extent, it's a subject that I'm sure is not discussed even so much with you but thrown at you oftentimes. Talk about your organization and this word and how it relates, doesn't relate, things along those lines. Sure. So Marcus, I think that um, as was pointed out in the video that you showed earlier, gentrification can mean so many different things to different people. Um, So it's a tough issue to kind of tackle and even the survey, you know, I think probably a lot of people looked at that and said, well, what does that mean exactly? So I don't know how how to respond to it because, um, you know, the word can mean so many different things for us. Um, at the EDDC, it's really kind of the opposite of what we are trying to do. Um, You know, gentrification can sometimes uh, come to mean sort of any kind of neighborhood change, and we really see it as something that is specific to uh, where displacement is occurring. And, you know, we all know that our city's population has been declining for decades, so for us, we're not interested in pushing anyone out. We're trying to 
attract more residents downtown. That is one of our stated goals. Um, and to have more housing downtown. Um, in the area that we're focused in, there's only about 870 residents. Uh, so for us, we know that we really need to increase those numbers and not you know, push people out in that process. I've had people ask personally, what do you think about EDDC and gentrification? I said, I think every building they've purchased so far has been it's vacant. vacant. Yeah. So the evidence is not in yet. But it's just interesting how that button is pushed so quickly. And why do you think that is? Yeah, it, it really is. And I think, like I said, it just um, has, that word has come to mean sort of neighborhood change. If there's a, if there's a coffee shop and a yoga studio, that means gentrification, um, which I don't necessarily think is true. I think that, you know, the changing of a neighborhood um, occurs certainly over a long period of time. It has taken us a long time to get to the point that we are at. Mm -hmm. um, and really, um, the area that we're working in, uh, the 16501 zip code, which we know is the poorest zip code mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania, it's and been recently, multiple times. yeah, recently was in an article as being the um, lowest income zip code in the entire country. Um, so I really feel like rather than a uh, gentrification problem downtown, we really have a poverty problem mm -hmm. uh, that needs to be addressed and, and looked at. So. so, Brett, you have a special challenge because you are in charge of something that many people don't understand in the first place. That's right. Opportunity zones. Right. Um, and, and even still with that, <laughs> people will tie this word in. And again, when I'm asked, I'm saying, listen, I'm trying to fully understand opportunity zones before we can even have a gentrification discussion about it. Talk about opportunity zones in particular first and then segue into how it does or doesn't or could or couldn't relate to this term. Yeah, so opportunity zones was a bipartisan provision that was built into the 2017 tax cut. And I always emphasize the fact that it was bipartisan because we rarely see that this day and age, but we had sponsors from both major political parties um, Cory Booker was one of them. Cory Booker and uh, Tim Scott from mm -hmm. South Carolina were the architects of the program. The program, uh, the, the most simple way I can put it, it was designed to activate capital gains and create an incentive, incentive so that those capital gains were filtered into communities where people and places have been left behind. Um, it's a, a place-based specific program where the government is incentivi incentivizing dollars so that they are reinvested into communities that have seen disinvestment over the, the decades. So um, opportunity zones and, and, and the word gentrification have been tied from the start. And, and I think that's because as we've talked about on the show already today, there's been a number of federal programs over the last few decades that have really accelerated the disinvestment of urban cores across America. So when people see another federal tax incentive program, they're automatically skeptical. We have eight designated opportunity zones in Erie based on census tract levels. Um, these census tracts were designated because of um, historical disinvestment, because of poverty rates, because of low median income, and because of um, low educational attainment. And, and what we're trying to do is unlock capital and filter investment into these census tracts mm -hmm. so that we can rebuild some of these communities. So if you lay the Opportunity Zones map on top of this redlining map, you do have a lot of areas in common, true? I, I was struck by the, the commonalities when I saw the map here this morning. Mm -hmm. um, the red 
uh, census tracts that you showed earlier really overlay with what have now been designated as opportunities on census tracts. Mm -hmm. Is that an opportunity to um, hopefully avoid the effects of traditional gentrification? Is that something that can be utilized as a tool to speed up gentrification? Well, so it, this, this program is a, it is a market mechanism, right? It's a free market mechanism. Individuals or corporation who have realized capital gains can choose to invest in these Opportunity Zone census tracts. Here in Erie, we've chosen to be very intentional and purposeful with our intervention in this program. And, and what I mean by that, we've tried to stay out in front of this and say these are the projects, these are the initiatives that we believe are important to lift all of our residents up to create wealth for everyone in the census tracts. My organization, which is uh, fairly new, we've actually created an internal scorecard mm -hmm. so that if we're going to go out and attract investment for a specific project, we want to make sure that project meets standards that we've developed um, from, an, from an economic viability standpoint, but also what's the social impact on this project. Mm -hmm. If we don't believe the social impact is there, that's not a project that we're necessarily interested in promoting to investors. Mm -hmm. that's, I, I thought it was encouraging that they plucked someone from City Hall in Mayor Schimber's administration because I think anyone who knows Mayor Schimber knows that inclusiveness and really, be, really making this everyone's eerie is a very, very large part of his agenda. And so that part is encouraging in terms of uh, your background and then your knowledge overall when it comes to the economic landscape and things along those lines. Nicole, I know that the Urban Land Institute came, did a lot of work, research on some different plans. They researched a lot of people in community um, about Erie, where it's been, where it's going from our vantage point. How much, because Brett unpacked something that's, that's uh, I think is noteworthy. You guys are being very intentional about where are we developing, how are we developing, how, what's the effect. How much is this a, a part of the discussion, um, the greater good, gentrification, these type of things, the social good, how much of these uh, things are part of the discussion when you're talking about revitalizing the area that you've dedicated yourselves to? Well, it's, it is a critical part of the discussion. So um, for us, you know, our stated mission is really um, the, the um, revitalization of the region, starting in the core. Um, so real estate development has been our primary focus. Um, but the rest of that, um, the rest of you know what the community looks like is so important as well. Because for us, um, you know, to your point, we really feel uh, compelled to sort of create opportunities for everyone in the community uh, to win. So this is not necessarily a win-lose um, game, but it, it is about how do we raise up everyone in the community, especially in the neighborhood that we're working in, uh, with the you know median income being just over ten thousand dollars a year. You know that is that's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. uh, so how do we create opportunities? Um, you know, job creation is not something that's stated in our mission, but that is obviously an important thing for our community. And how do we get? individuals living in low-income housing into a better situation. Mm -hmm. So from a community engagement standpoint, give us some of your key takeaways when you were actually in the position, whether it's, you know, people look at the presidency, the, the number one thing that changes your disposition when you become president 
It's information. Information changes everything. And you can talk about what you would or wouldn't do until you sit in that seat and you get all the information. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. things look different. What looked different to you when you started to engage the community, whether it's the residents, potential funders, businesses? What were some of your takeaways? Well, I think, um, I think some of the biggest takeaways are when it comes to gentrification, what, pe what people are anxious about is the idea of displacement. When it comes to uh, the kinds of changes and improvements to the neighborhood, that's something that's sort of univer universally um, something people can get behind and get excited about. So even in talking to, to residents downtown, um, people who, are, who work downtown every day, it seems that um, most everyone is interested in seeing the kinds of things that uh, we want to bring to downtown. Mm -hmm. um, any of us who are downtown on uh, evenings, weekends, it's kind of a ghost town. So how do we bring activities, life, um, programs, events, you know, more businesses downtown to create that life and density and vibrancy um, at all hours of the day? Mm -hmm. So Brett, at, at the chamber, the new CEO of the chamber, Yes. Um, James Gronke. Yes. Met him and his wife at an event when he first got to town. And his wife especially started speaking about diversity and inclusion in a very spirited manner. And this was something that was very dear to her. And then, you know, James is chiming in. And I said, this is, this is going to be an interesting ride at the chamber. And so the intentionality of these discussions, walk us through that a little bit of the chamber when you are discussing these issues. With James, I think there was an immediate recognition that um, the, the chamber and the business community lacked diversity, right? I don't think it's any secret that this conversations in this community have been dominated in large part by middle-aged white males. And that's the reality of, of Erie for the past, I don't know how many years, and I think James immediately recognized that and made that one of his goals to change because I think practically speaking, he recognizes the importance of diverse voices mm -hmm. at the organizational level, at the community level. Um, people come and approach situations based on their personal experiences, their personal bias. The more diversity of thought you have in a room, the more um, creative and innovative and successful solutions you're going to develop. So I think James recognized that right away and, and spoke to the staff and externally to colleagues, mm -hmm. stakeholders, business leaders, civic leaders, and philanthropic leaders and said that if this is going to be a community and, and more specifically a, a business community that thrives, there has to be some intentionality about creating a more diverse set of voices at the table. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to my book here. Dr. Saylor, we'll bring you back into this conversation. We appreciate your patience over here. One of the takes in this book is by Beth McConnell, and her segment of this um, dual-sided viewpoint book was gentrification can benefit well, everyone can benefit from gentrification with equitable development. And here's something I want to read. She's talking about Philadelphia in particular. It says a recent report from the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia used credit report data to track how people moved in and out of gentrifying neighborhoods in Philadelphia. Their research showed that when lower credit score residents, who are likely lower income, move out of gentrifying neighborhoods, 
They moved to neighborhoods with poor quality of life, with lower performing schools, higher crime rates, and or higher unemployment rates. When they were able to stay in an, in an improving neighborhood, however, their credit scores actually boosted by an average of 11 points, a proxy for improvement in their financial health. Research shows that poor children who grow up in good neighborhoods have a much better chance of breaking generational cycles of poverty and becoming economically mobile later in life. What are your thoughts on that? Anybody it, is free to chime in. To so we understand <laughs> there's a correlation between crime and poverty. We understand that. That's, that's not really, you know, arguable. And everything that the, the quote talks about, and Brett and Nicole have talked about, whether it's opportunities for better education, uh, whether it's uh, opportunities for more positive role models, Right, whether it's not just having that access to a criminal element, those are all good things. It's it's not just, I think sometimes from looking from the outside in, it's it's just that maybe we're not all in this together in terms of the poverty issue being my issue. If I don't live in and around those neighborhoods, if I don't even live in Erie, if I live wherever, it's not so much an issue other than maybe just like where my tax dollars go. But it is an issue that we're all in together because of the relationship we know that poverty has on crime, right? So um, I, I want to throw this out there. I, uh, in terms of education and poverty, uh, Florida in the past has considered the number of correctional beds they'll need based on third grade reading levels. That's terrible, but it's also what has found to, be wor to work for them to understand how many correctional beds they need uh, because of that relationship between educational opportunities, poverty, and so we are all in this together. It shouldn't be just that's something for city residents to worry about. It's, it's not that I'm not involved because I don't live in here other than just where my taxpayers or tax dollars are going. It should be um, I do have an interest in that community being revitalized, even if I don't live there, because mm -hmm. there are some real outcomes that I can feel on the back end that maybe I won't directly feel, but, you know, we'll see. Mm. Brett, you wanted to chime in on that. Well, I, I, based on that excerpt and, and kind of in context in, of what Nicole and I are looking to do, we're, we're looking to really facilitate investments in physical space, right? Real estate development is really at the core of what we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I was really struck by the, the comment earlier about how creating a guard a guardian in a neighbor defers crime right and so i think investments in in physical space in in the neighborhoods that we operate we're trying to create a a, a sense of place uh, a sense of safety because we think the residual effects of that um, will lead to you know potentially decreasing crime um, alleviation of poverty and and all of the the, the tangential um, effects of investing in, in the quality of place so mm -hmm. I just wanted to you know make that comment based on what I heard in the first segment mm -hmm. and and I just I can't help but feel really optimistic about where we're headed as a community and solving these issues because I really see um, our community from the private sector, the public sector, the nonprofit sector really coming together and collaborating in sort of an unprecedented way to sort of solve some of these big issues. I feel like we are at a time now maybe more than ever where we're all really kind of pulling in the same direction and so for me um, I think we have every reason to be optimistic about, you know, how we tackle some of these challenges. So let's imagine that this room is full of 
community people who are part of that, yes, I'm concerned about gentrification. I am adamantly concerned about gentrification. Set the record straight because, you know, I've already explained to many people, to the listeners, that that group will have their opportunity to say, here are our fears Mm -hmm. in another show. What don't people understand or, or what should they consider when it comes to your personal mission or your organization's mission where this topic is concerned? Brett, we'll start with you. Set the record straight on to some degree for those that think that's what this is. So, again, the, the flagship development company is essentially a startup, and I was very purposeful about how I am currently designing the organizational structure. Mm-hmm. And there's three major components of my organizational structure. And the first component and arguably the most important component is my relationship with the Erie Neighborhood Growth Partnership. I look at that group, and if you're not familiar with that group, you're actually involved in that group, but it's a a group of neighborhood associations and organizations and folks that work at a neighborhood level in Erie. Um, I've reached out to them and asked that group to really serve as the conduit to the residents. Mm to serve as a two-way communications platform so that I can hear what the neighborhood priorities are, what the neighborhood concerns are, um, and and to also express what I believe are opportunities for investment and um, development projects, a two-way communication piece. It's also an accountability measure for me to ensure that the the dollars that I'm trying to attract and and the projects that we're promoting are projects that are near and dear and important to the residents in these communities. So I would say that that first, um, structuring the organization in a way in which there's um, accessibility and communication with the residents and and some accountability built in was one thing that was very important to me. Uh, Second, I've talked a little bit about uh, investments in physical space today. Those investments in physical space have to be aligned with investments uh, in people. Right. So, for example, if if we're working to attract a a business to the community, um, we better be sure that we're also investing in training and workforce development so that the folks in those communities will have opportunities to be employed at that new business. Mm. So we're always cognizant about matching those investments in the physical space with uh, strategic alignments in people and residents and, and, and our neighbors in the city. So mm. those are the two ways that I would address that question. Nicole, from an EDDC perspective, set the record straight on anything that you may feel like is a, a misrepresentation or, or misconception mm-hmm. about your mission. Well, I think that um, many people don't realize that EDDC is working in such a small targeted area, um, and that is by design. You know, one of the things we learned from other cities, um, Cincinnati in particular, was that we needed to concentrate our investments so that the community can really see an impact. And we refer to it as kind of the heart of our city, and we're trying to shock the system. So how do we invest in, in a very targeted area, again, where there aren't enough residents so you know for the resident you mentioned the residents who maybe have concerns about um, what is happening we're putting together a community engagement council um, that will include residents within our footprint but since there are um, since we are trying to grow that we're also including people um, you know new americans uh, people from different ethnicities different parts of the community to learn about how we can create sort of this Um, genuine downtown Erie experience that is not, you know, 
bringing chains and franchises downtown so it could be any town USA. Mm -hmm. But how do we create an experience that's very um, authentic to our community and reflective of the great you know, talents and cultures that we have in our community? Uh, so we're pulling this group together to really help us see what does that look like? You know, what would make you want to live downtown? Mm -hmm. uh, so part of it for us is you know, recruiting more people to live downtown. So you're putting putting together a group for that purpose. Brett, you're talking about your connection to the Erie Neighborhood Growth Partnership and relying on them for a lot of intel and just to be that connection to these neighborhoods that are at issue. Is there anything else that the community or players within the community can do to help your missions, whether it's information or what have you? Is there anything that the community can do to assist you on making sure that this is a holistic plan that goes forward? Go ahead. Well, I think, um, I think another important thing for the community to remember is none of this, as fast as we would like to move, none of this happens overnight. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as investments are being made, to Brett's point, um, you know, Erie Insurance is building, UPMC Hammond is building, Allegheny Health Network is investing. Like, how, how, did, how does the community um, prepare themselves to be a part of, you know, to be um, able to get those jobs and to be able to um, be a part of, if they want to be a part of downtown, um, where do they see themselves? Do they see themselves working downtown? Do they see themselves playing downtown and being a part of some of the uh, activities and events that we have planned for this year? I would love to see people uh, take part in that mm -hmm. and you know provide feedback on what we could do to make that a better experience for them to make downtown more appealing to the community. Brett, what can the community do to help make this easier? You got about a minute and a half. I'm going to give you a really simple answer. Just talk to me, right? I am very accessible. Um, I think most individuals that know me um, recognize that my intentions are are in the right place. I care deeply about this community. I'm raising my family here. That drives my work, mm -hmm. right? I want to see investment that has a positive social impact on the community. I recognize and I sympathize with the concerns out there. Pick up the phone, send me an email, talk to me. Um, I can handle constructive criticism. I don't know everything. I want to hear from the residents. I want to mm -hmm. talk to people. That's, that's my simple answer. All right. So thank you so much, Dr. Saylor, Nicole Reitzel. Brett Weiler, thank you for coming on and sharing your viewpoints on this very, very touchy topic. Installment one is in the can. Hopefully you learned something. I'm looking forward to the community edition of this topic of gentrification. Thank you for tuning in to Next on WQLN. Join us next month as we explore another timely topic with local guests. Again, there will be a second installment of this very show from a community perspective. For radio, tune in to 91.3 FM on the fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. So for Next on WQLN, I'm Marcus Atkinson, and we will see you next time. Music